Welcome to VCR, Vintage Cinema Rewind. We're bringing old movies to new viewers. I'm Blake. And I'm not allowed to breathe, apparently. <laughs> Blake <laughs> was to do with this movie, but... Blake was just complaining that I was breathing too loud into the microphone. <laughs> Sorry. Some of us have to edit this after. Yeah, some of us. <laughs> and we're doing Dog Day Afternoon. This is part two, our deep dive discussion. If you haven't seen this movie, it's awesome, and you should go check out the Primer episode where we talk spoiler-free about this movie and all of the reasons why you should check it out. But this is not that episode. This is the full deep dive, spoiler-full discussion. So if you haven't seen this movie, highly recommend it. Go check out the previous episode. Go check out the previous episode and then the movie. Yeah. So where we usually start with this is in front of the camera, and we work our way back. And so... Why don't we just do that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so Al Pacino. So Al Pacino. So Al Pacino. The best performances of his entire career. Yes. The best performance. I would say the best. Yeah. So the movie opens with Sal and Sonny and one other character in the car. And they basically get out of the car and set up for this armed robbery of the bank. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, things go horribly wrong. <laughs> we don't. I don't know if we have to talk about every minor detail of how hilarious the opening 20 minutes are and how wrong they go, but some of the highlights include the third unnamed, because I don't remember his name. I don't think anybody character. does. <laughs> yeah. The third armed robber deciding that he can't do it, Sonny, and he quits in the first minute of the robbery essentially yeah and they just kind of let him go yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's kind of hilarious like sonny's reaction is one of my favorites of the entire film in this moment and it's like one of my favorite quotes the entire movie is when when they're talking he's like i can't do it sonny (laughs) and sonny's like oh fuck me like yeah he's like basically almost like cries at that moment yeah because you know, right off the bat, things are, are not going right in this heist as one right. dips. And then they have to grab the keys from the security guard and actually let him out. Yeah. Like, and then he's like, give me the keys. And he's like, how am I supposed to get home? He's like, take the subway. We need the car. <laughs> I love his reaction, too, because it takes him a second to, like, process what the guy just says to him. Like, you're kidding me, right? Like, yeah, you're yeah. leaving the middle of this heist. And you're complaining about not being able to get home easily. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, it's so... I think my favorite individual moment is when he's putting spray paint on, like, the cameras. Yes. And there's one he can't reach, so he has to, like, grab a chair or stand on it and, like, spray it. The point of the this is, is that the first 20 minutes are hilarious, ridiculous, and just everything goes wrong. Right up to the main point in which they go to get the money out of the bank and... There's nothing in there. There's like, like 1600 bucks. Yeah. And they thought they were going to be pulling out like two, 300000 out of the bank. Is what they were told when they set up this heist. Right. But the person had come by earlier today and cleaned it all out. So that's all they had left. Exactly. And I, I love that moment, especially early on in the movie, because it just, it just hammers home how futile everything is. Like how futile this whole endeavor was. Right? Right. Then after that, and then the police get involved, and it just becomes about survival. Yes. Right? At that point in time. And that's a really interesting way to put it, too, because that is what the main characters also think about this as as well, right? Like, in its very basic form, they're thinking about survival, because this is the 70s. This is, like, police brutality is at the forefront of people's minds. Like, there's a lot of mistrust. There's the Attica prison riots, which had just happened uh, within the last year or so in the 70s and so that's on a lot of people's mind and and there's a lot of fear about what the police are capable of and also their ability to get away with things like this right right so and i think that leads to one of the most interesting aspects of the movie at least for me is that as this whole carnival forms around the bank the media and like the civilians kind of start framing sunny as this like hero this kind of like Robin Hood figure who's sticking it to the man. Right. And this is, again, where I think Pacino's performance really shines through is that he's clearly surprised and baffled by the whole thing, but he's also kind of enjoying the attention, yeah, right? definitely. I think one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when 
the news anchor calls him over the bank phone to interview right. him and it, the interview goes horribly horribly <laughs> yeah. wrong because <laughs> he's dropping f-bombs left right and center right right, right. And he's like, the news anchor's like, why did you rob this bank? And he's like, what kind of question is that? I needed the money. Yeah. He's like, no, why did you feel you needed to rob this bank? And he's like, oh, listen to me, Mr. Anchorman. How much money do you make in a week? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly. And then he's like, Sonny, uh, we're trying to keep, he's like, we're talking to you here. He's like, yeah, you're talking to me. Let's make this a conversation. And then <laughs> at one point he just hangs up. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the, the newscast actually hangs up on him, basically. Right, right. Because- right. Of all the F-bombs and everything else that he's dropping while he's talking. But that's actually a really good and interesting part as well. Because there's kind of a heroism to his character that, you know, over the course of this heist really becomes apparent. Because, again, this is a time of inflation and a lot of societal pressures on people. And that's the point that Sonny makes on, on that call. I think he literally even says in the interview with the newscasters, like, I got pressure or well, like, yeah. And that that's the whole point in the movie, too, is like this deconstruction of what leads a person to rob a bank, especially someone who, as you said in the primary episode, you know, there is intelligence behind some of Sonny's chaos and disorder. And I think the opening does a really good job of demonstrating that, like, there's that scene early on, like, midst of the bank robbery where he grabs the manager and he's like, okay, open the vault. And the manager goes to put one key in and he's like, what? Hey, he's like, he's like, use the spot key. He's like, what are you trying to sound the alarm? Do you think I'm stupid? Right. Like, and like, as a viewer, you're like, oh, okay. Like, you know, and then there's other, like a moment after that where he's robbing the registers and he's like, no, 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 don't pull the money out like that. It'll trigger the alarm. You gotta do this. And then he's like, they open one register and he's like, wow, are you kidding me? Like, this is counterfeit money. You're trying to mark me. Like, right. yeah. So like, you're like, oh, he either worked at a, he, I think he literally says I worked at a bank. Yes. So like he's, you know, in it builds enough intrigue to want make you keep watching. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, exactly. oh, okay. Yeah. And, and so that kind of builds him up as well in the sense that, yeah, like you said, like, even though there's all of these things happening, all of these pressures, it's kind of like a what will Sonny do to get out of this next situation? And again, there is sprinkles of like decency too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's hilarious when he tries to lock all everybody up in the vault. The woman was just like, I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And he's like, what, are you, are you kidding me? And he's like, all right, fine. Who else has to go to the bathroom? <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a very orderly hostage taking situation. Like the hostages come to kind of some of them even have a little bit of fun while they're stuck in here for like 12 to 14 hours. With all yeah. Of yeah. Or there's even that like there's this elderly security guard named Howard who has yes. asthma. So he like immediately kind of collapses and, mm-hmm. you know, the police get involved. They're like, okay, well. So one of the early deals, they're like, we'd want you to release one hostage. And he's instantly like, okay, well, let's get Howard out of here. Because yeah. he's having an asthma attack. Yeah, right? and, he, and he basically tells them that he's got a bunch of women with them. He doesn't really say that he's got men with them. And so that does throw a wrench. And that's what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That leads to the first big problem. Yeah. And I think that's what I also really appreciate about the movie is that the bank robbery goes tits up so quickly but then we see that, like, the whole police barricade situation is also incredibly mismanaged. Yeah, like, right from the get-go, the circus just comes to town. Like, all of these spectators are just there still. Like, they don't clear everybody off of the street. Like, if you think about today, there would be nobody within, like, a hundred, like, a kilometer of this. Like, yeah, everybody yeah. would be kicked out. Like, you know, there's people sitting in their homes, like, in, in their apartment buildings watching this happen across the street and stuff. Yeah, and there's that great moment kind of later on where, like, the SWAT team tries to break in through the back door, so he shoots out the back window, and then him and what's his name? Mori... Moretti. Moretti. Him and Moretti start yelling at each other. Moretti's like, what are you doing? Why are you shooting out the back window? And he's like, oh, you got guys coming to the back. And Moretti's like, no, I don't. And it's like, it turns out Moretti doesn't even know what the police are doing behind the building. Yeah. And it's... That's one of the great like improvised scenes of the movie. Like that that's pure improvisation from both of them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> because yeah, and there's there, you can feel the tension between the two of them because neither of them knows what the other person's going to say either because they're both trying just reacting off of each other. It does give their performances like a certain rawness that really yeah, helps this movie age well. Yeah. What did you think of Moretti? 
did you think he was kind of an okay guy? Yeah, I you know he he was doing his best, but he wasn't the police sergeant that they needed at that point in time. You know, like he's he's definitely out of his element. This is beyond the scope of his capabilities. I think it makes him a good foil to Sonny in that they're both two people who are in way over their heads. There's also a great moment when Sonny periodically leaves the bank to talk to Moretti, right? And there's a great moment where the boyfriend of one of the women who's been taken hostage runs forward and like tackles him to the ground and starts punching him. Right. And they have to get him out of there. And then Sonny's all like, how did he get through the barricade? Yeah. Like, you know. Like, how did you mess this <laughs> up? That, yeah, and Moretti's just so frustrated. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, and that even kind of going back to what you were saying about, you know, the initial part of the movie where they trade one of the hostages and it's the, what's his name again? Howard, the Howard. old guy. Yeah. They immediately think that he is one of, another one of the bank robbers. And part of it as well is probably like, it's a miscommunication. Yeah, it's a big yeah. miscommunication because they don't know there's a guy in there. And you, you believe it as well that like the police would just suddenly like grab this guy and like handcuff him. Handcuff yeah. him and like, you know, they they're they're pretty hands on grabby with him and like you know, th- that whole scene's pretty gross, like because it's believable. Um, yeah, and even Moretti is like disgusted. Yeah. He's like, get off him, like, come on. Yeah, and, and like they don't know who this guy is at this point in time, and that's when, you know, like he's mad he's like what are you doing like that that's one of the hostages like he's like he's obviously unwell too right yeah and and so that's where really the crowd kind of is instantly won over because he's screaming at moretti like uh sonny's screaming at moretti like you know what are you doing like trying to like get him off of them and then they have there's the other woman sylvie yeah uh sylvia yeah sylvia's like yelling like that's one of the hostages kind of thing like what are you doing and that's when the crowd is, is won over, right? Like, when the crowd is starting to be won over by Sonny and, and his antics. And then, at that point as well, he starts screaming at the Attica as, like, his... his yeah, team, yeah. Which is a, a really good moment as well, kind of thing, to get them on his side. It's also a little bit, like, armor on him, because, you know, like, he's so afraid that the police are just going to gun him down, like, on the streets in front of everybody, that to win everybody over like that is just... It's, it's such an intelligent way to just... Make sure that you're not a, become a martyr, essentially. Like he he's basically like pre-martyred himself so that the police won't kill him. Yeah, it just become it really. Yeah, yeah, he really becomes a headache for the police. Yeah, and all the while, and th- and this is a really interesting little piece of this too. Is all the while the FBI is there immediately. And just, like, they're spectating. Like, the police are like, we got this. Like, don't worry about this. You know, it's every 20 minutes or so. You just see him in the background just kind of spectating, watching this, like, unbelievable how this is kind of unfolding. And I I will say that FBI guy kind of, like, he's a very intimidating presence. Yes. There is that scene later on where he goes up to Sonny. He's like, I want to come in. He's like, I want to see what's going on. Right. And Sonny's like, well, you got a lot of confidence. Like, how do you know I didn't slit their throats? And he's just like, I want to see. Right. And then he comes in and he looks around and he sort of basically says, like, this is all going to be over soon. And he's like, and you need to watch your friend Sal because throughout the whole movie, Sal is starting to crack under the pressure. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we know really early on that Sal is definitely not all okay in the head. Like, he's he's got some things going on. He's definitely a pretty disturbed guy. Like, he... At one point, like, Sonny says that he's going to, you know... He, I'm going to start throwing hostages out the door, yeah, like, one by one. Throwing bodies out the door. Throwing basically. bodies out the door, yeah. Yeah, and and Sal pulls him to the side, and he says, like, you know, like, were you serious about that? Because I'm ready to gun down anybody in any given moment here. It's kind of funny, because when he first pulls Sonny, he's like, were you, are you serious about that? And I'm like, oh, he's going to object. And he's like, right. no, like, let's do it. Yeah. Like, you yeah. know, let's start. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, like, later on, he, Sonny kind of breaks down the fact that he's like are we still good like you know you told me that if this wasn't successful that we were gonna we had a suicide pact and we were gonna kill each other if this didn't work and he's like is, are we is that still the plan and you know Sonny obviously has definitely just told him that like i don't think Sonny's prepared to die at, at any point in this film no um, no and Sonny's like working his way through this trying to figure out how they're going to get out of this and and even like fbi especially recognize the 
issue with having Sal in this. Like they can work with Sonny and they kind of know long term how that they're going to get Sonny. Um but with Sal, he becomes like the the question, the problem in in this whole situation. And that's and that's a great way this movie builds tension is like I kept thinking like Sonny is not just juggling the police and the hostages. He's also trying to appease Sal the whole movie, right? right? Yeah. And like Sal gradually begins showing like there's kind of that great moment later on when, you know, he has kind of that conversation with Sylvia where he's just like, you shouldn't smoke. Like, yeah, your body's a temple. Right. And he's just like, you know, your body's a temple for Jesus Christ. And she's like, are you serious? Like you're you're a Christian, but you're robbing banks, right? <laughs> yeah, and and you genuinely because you know this character hasn't heard everything that Sal has said. You're genuinely a little bit afraid because you don't know if Sal's gonna just shoot her right there and then. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really interesting, scary performance, like quiet, scary performance. He yeah, that's almost one of the most chilling scenes of the whole movie is just her conversation with Sunny. Yeah. Not Sonny, Sal. Sal. I actually like Sylvia a lot. I actually thought yes. that was Jamie Lee Curtis at first. <laughs> but it's not. It's, it's not. not. No. I I guess Sonny is the focal point of the film, but like, should we discuss his character in a little bit more detail and, and break him down and Well, we should probably talk about the big twist halfway through that we've been alluding to. Yes. That he's actually a gay man yes. robbing a bank so that he can pay for his partner's gender reassignment surgery yes and you know what the movie does a really good job of completely setting this up to be like his wife and kids like that we actually are expecting that his wife and our kids are going to show up at this bank at any time and we've met the wife and kids briefly earlier on so they have a conversation they have a conversation with his parents at some point actually if you when you rewatch this movie Pay attention to the opening credits, the rolling credits of the film, because there's a shot of, you know, just all of the mundane things happening in New York at this point right. in time. There's actually a quick shot of her walking with the kids down the street, which I oh, caught on this watch. Oh, yes. very clever. Yes. But yeah, so the whole movie's kind of building up that they're going to, you know, reconnect. She's going to show up and, and they're going to try to use her to get Sonny out of this. And then the twist happens that. Sonny actually wants to see Leon, his, his, his other wife. His lover. Yeah, yeah. And their whole conversation, like, I was actually, like, I was watching it recently, and I was like, this is a very well-acted, well-done conversation yeah, between... Honestly, you... that's the highlight of the movie for me, is is their conversation and reconciling with each other. I don't even know if they reconcile, but like you believe like, oh, this is a couple that's on the rocks. Yeah. Like it's so believable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, there's a little bit of uh, lead up to this as well, because Leon doesn't want to speak to Sonny because of the way Leon and Sonny's relationship has gone up until this point. Like Leon's almost afraid of Sonny at this point because of Sonny's outbursts and yeah sonny says like he's got a lot of pressures on him and and again like we talked about this in the primer episode you kind of feel for sonny because of all of the stuff in his life going on and just all of the different pressures and pulls from all of these different people and places kind of thing it's something that as an adult you can really connect with to a point yeah and then yeah leon is just kind of like i want to go back i'm gonna go back to the hospital like the doctors there are nice and they're gonna help me and like blah 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 and they they don't i don't really think they even reconcile it's more just like okay i'll see you around leon okay i'll see like in your you know he says like i'll see you around leon he's like yeah in your dream i'll see you in my dreams yeah and then he has this final conversation with his wife so the deal is he left his wife for uh for leon and then they have a conversation and it is even more heartbreaking in a weird way yeah like angie his wife is just so frantic and like He's trying to be nice to her, but he's clearly just kind of frustrated with her. Right, because he's saying that she's not listening to him because she's in this panic hysteria, basically, over him and and their situation, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, you can see that they're obviously not a wealthy family. Like, they've got this bunk bed for the kids. Like, their house is, you know... It's like a shitty apartment. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very small and, and cramped, and it looks like 
100 degrees in there kind of thing, right? Yeah, and then, yeah, so... Which we didn't even talk about yet why this movie is called Dog Day Afternoon. The Dog Days of Summer? Yeah, exactly. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's, you know, the end of summer, like when it's really hot in August kind of thing, and, you know, you, you almost don't even want to be inside, but... It, being outside is even worse kind of thing there's like, that great moment where the police cut the air conditioning to the bank and for the rest of the movie everyone is just sweating bullets yeah getting progressively sweatier yeah if you like sweaty human beings you're gonna <laughs> love this movie <laughs> Sonny's situation is is really what carries this movie you know what moment though i did admire though is um so mulvaney this kind of older manager he is diabetic and he starts kind of having kind of like a diabetic fit later right. on in the movie. So Sonny gets a doctor to come in and the doctor basically says, like, we should get him out of here to get him looked at. And then Sonny is actually willing to let Mulvaney go. Yep. Like, all right, get out of here. And then Mulvaney just says, like, I'm fine. I just want to be left alone. Yeah. Like, he's unwilling to leave his employees. And there's that great moment where he just says, like, he says to Sonny, like, you're not some angel of human mercy. He's like, I wish you'd never walked into my fucking bank. Yeah. And I remember thinking, like, yeah, this movie is sympathetic towards Sonny, but it's not condoning his behavior either. Yeah, exactly. You know? Going back a little bit, kind of the complex relationship this movie has with the LGBTQ community. Yeah, I guess we should talk about that. Yeah. Because that... The reveal that Sonny is actually gay and why he's robbing the bank in the first place caught me fully off guard. And, like, it's shocking in 2023, but, like, it must have been mind-blowing in 1977 or whenever this came out. Right. It portrays things in a pretty complicated way, right? Because even right off the bat, like, as they're talking about it on the news broadcast when it becomes announced uh, in the movie, they say, essentially, that, you know, there are people of the community who are you know upset and feeling like they're being portrayed like pretty badly here because obviously you know you don't want to be associated with bank robber yeah but on the flip side there's people who are supporting him just blindly supporting him because he's part of the gay yeah. community like, Isn't, don't they have signs that say like out of the closet and into the something yeah it was yeah. clever i just can't remember it <laughs> yeah and so like there's out of the closet group. into the streets or something like that right. yeah yeah and so there's like the big community that comes to support him kind of thing and like you know there's there's a lot of complicated thoughts about that and like you know about being part of a tribe essentially and and you know sticking up for people even though what the people are doing isn't a good thing right and i watching this movie i was shocked by how and, you know, someone can argue, I'm not a great authority on this, and feel free to argue with me on this, people in the comments, but, like, this movie seems almost kind of really ahead of its time in terms of how... Especially, like, Leon and Sonny's Yeah, like, right? how maturely it handles this subject yeah. matter, yeah. right? Like, okay, so when Leon is explaining that he needed gender reassignment surgery, one of the cops snickers. Right. But, like... It's not treated as a joke, right? That yeah. cop is just an asshole. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And one of the cops actually calls a note on it too, right? Mm-hmm. Like Jess, Jess actually said while we were watching it this time, she was like, do you think the cop in the background who's giggling like is supposed to be giggling, giggling right now? And I was like, I 100% think he's supposed to be giggling right now. And then right after that, he gets shut down. Yeah. For being an idiot. Yeah, essentially. And not, and not being you know sympathetic to or empathetic to somebody's situation. Mm-hmm. It's it's a really interesting look at all of that, and I, I think that some people are going to be upset by the portrayals, and other people are going to... I was trying to think, like, if I was a member of this community, would I appreciate this representation, or would I not? And I can't really answer that. Yeah. Because on the one hand, he's a bank robber. On the other hand, like, again, that scene with him and Leon is... Like, it's not... It's profound, almost. Like, yeah, like, it's not... It's not a joke. It's not comic relief. It's just these are two people with a very complicated romantic relationship. Yeah, and like I said, it's my favorite scene in the whole movie, I think, is just their conversation on the phone. I am completely, like, 100% gripped their whole conversation to what they're saying. Yeah, really. And that's a testament to both actors, Al Pacino and Chris Randon. Prince Humperdinck. Yeah, Chris Humperdinck. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, this is probably my favorite Chris Sarandon performance now. I guess it would have to be, yeah. 
Gonna have to rewatch The Princess Bride, though. Oh, we'll do that on the podcast for sure at some point. That's one of my favorite movies of all Fuck time. Fuck yeah. I'm thinking about Inigo Motoya. Prepare to die. <laughs> oh, you know what? We didn't even talk about this quote, but this is one of my favorite quotes of the whole movie as well, is when Sonny brings the FBI agent into the bank, and Sonny says to him, like, you'd like to kill me. I bet you would. Mm-hmm. And Sheldon says, I wouldn't like to kill you, but I will if I have to. Yeah. And Sonny says, it's your job, right? The guy who kills me, I hope he does it because he hates my guts, not because it's a job. That's a really good line in this film. I Can we talk about the ending, too? Like, yeah. So the last half hour, Sonny gets Sylvia or one of the other women to basically dictate a final letter. Right. His last will and testament. Yeah. And then they all get in the limousine that's been provided. And there's that great moment where there's like the black driver who's kind of acting yeah, silly. Like all goofy and like, yeah. And then Sonny's like, hey, I want him to be the driver. Yeah, he and sniffs out that that guy's got to be like some sort of plant, right? Like that Yeah, yeah. And that actually took me by surprise. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. like at first I was like, oh, they're just pulling this random side character to the movie. And then I was like. Oh, he's a cop. Like, yeah. And Sonny sniffed it out, right? right? And then they all get in the car, and uh, I forget who it is. The one... The FBI a- agent. The FBI agent. He's like, Sal's sitting directly behind him, pointing the gun at the back right. of his head. He's like, Sal, could you please like point your gun up in the air? Because like, if we hit a bump, I don't want your you know, gun to discharge, right? Yeah, blow my brains out. Yeah, and Sal is pretty amendable to that. He's like, oh, okay. And then yep. like, you know, they go through the streets, and like, the civilians are like pounding on the car door and like the car's bumping and like at a couple of different points, Sal lowers his gun and then raises it and then lowers it again. So like, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm like, what's going to happen? And like, I'm pretty sure I was pretty sure Sonny was going to die just because of, he has a final conversation with his wife. Yep. There's a finality to a lot of his character. There's, he has two conversations with his two wives and then he has a final conversation with his mom, which is also heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And then they all get in the car. And then, you know, it keeps coming back to Sal raising and lowering his gun. And there's all these tight close-up shots of everyone in the car. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay. And then they get to the airport and the plane comes around. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sonny's like, oh, hey, is there food on the plane? Like, I was hoping <laughs> there's food on the plane. And then again, the FBI is like, oh, Sal, just can you raise your gun again? Remember? Yeah. And then... Again, the plane's coming, and like I'm just like I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I was like pretty sure Sonny was gonna die. Like, how is this gonna resolve itself? Turns out the FBI had a gun planted in the car. They shoot Sal, and then they point their guns at Sonny. Right, and that's how it ends. Yeah. It's a very, very dramatic, very quick. Yeah, it's a thing. blunt ending. It's a very blunt. It's very effective, but yes. it's very blunt. It's very dark. It's almost so dark that it doesn't fit some of the silliness of the rest of the movie like some of the comedy of the movie the movie does become very somber towards the final act which i did actually kind of appreciate yeah and i think it does a good job of that i think that might be the reason why this movie hasn't necessarily maintained itself inside of the zeitgeist for so long is i think with an ending like that you know the movie loses a little bit of rewatchability. You know what? Kind of an ending. You know what though? Like, there was actually one moment towards the end that actually shocked me and how touched I was. Like, hmm. so they need to pick one hostage to leave before they get on the plane, and they pick right. Maria, yep. who was previously hiding in the bathroom. Right. And it's her boyfriend that tackled Al Pacino, Sonny, outside. And just as she gets out of the car, she goes, "Oh, Sal!" Like. I know you said you've never been on a plane before, but don't worry. Like, it's going to be okay. And then she takes off her necklace and gives it to him. Yeah. And I saw that and I'm like, I was deeply touched by that moment for whatever reason. I was just like, oh, like, yeah, you know, something about that moment really caught me off guard and pulled at my heartstrings. Cool. Yeah. And then Sal gets shot. (laughs) Yeah. And then Sal gets shot. Right. But then, but then as Al Pacino is being pressed into the car and like, Sal's body is being wheeled away there's that kind of sweet moment where he looks up and he sees all the hostages walking away and they're all safe and like the a little smile kind of tugs on the corners of his lips yeah like he feels he feels a little bit relieved that it's over himself he's I think he's relieved that nobody got hurt yes despite everything yeah so yeah is Sonny a good guy probably not but there is 
that weird humanity to him that kind of pulls you to him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. By the way, imagine robbing a bank and Al Pacino plays you in a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, the whole story behind that's kind of interesting. Like, we're going to get into that, but this happened in 1972, and then uh, Life Magazine wrote an article about it, like a a full, you know, few-page article about this, and, and then they bought the rights to that article to make this movie. Life Magazine described John, the actual heist guy, as looking like a main actor type character who would be played by either Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman. Huh. And so funny. Yeah. So Al Pacino actually was offered this role first and he turned it down because of, again, being a character actor, not wanting to be in this character who's very high anxiety, very stressed out and like, you know, being pulled by all these directions. Didn't want to have to go into that after being portraying Michael Michael Corleone. Corleone. Yeah. He ended up, going back and and accepting the role because he heard that dustin hoffman was potentially going to take the role instead and that was his main rival at this point in time in hollywood yep a lot of uh, a lot of the greatest movies were because of yeah leading men measuring their dicks against each other stallone and arnold yeah that's classic. that was the next decade <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think that the movie does a good job with the closing as well like it's very abrupt but it also they don't get away with it and that's that's what actually happened like yeah i was trying to imagine how it was going to end like maybe there were cops waiting in the plane or something right. and like his whole plan of like we're going to get a jet and we're going to fly to algeria right and like even uh leon says to him like what are you going to do in algeria like yeah. you know you don't even have money at this point yeah <laughs> like it's it's all a farce and a pipe dream right but he's yeah. so committed to it Right. He even says, he's like, I'll write to his mom, I'll write you from Algeria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think part of it is he's trying to, you know, sell himself on this. Like, he, he I think he knows that things aren't going to get away, but I think he's also a little bit of himself afraid of what Sal is capable of. Because there are some allusions that to the fact that maybe he's made a deal to get rid of Sal. Like, it's not, I wouldn't say that I necessarily agree with that point of view, but that is definitely some thoughts that people have had is did he make a deal with the FBI to rat Sal out to survive and, and, you know, maybe take a smaller prison sentence. I didn't get that vibe at all, but well, but like there's a point in time when the FBI say to him like, Hey, we're going to take care of Sal. Don't worry about it. Yeah, there was that. I thought that was more the FBI just saying to him like, Look, we can tell you're the reasonable one, but that guy is a loose cannon. Yeah. So deal with it. Right. Or we'll deal with it, I mean. Yeah. And they do deal with it. Oh, definitely. But there's definitely, I think a lot of people see that as him potentially making a deal or having already made a deal with the FBI. Hmm. So that that's just one way to look at it. Interesting. Okay. There's a lot of like little details in this that I think... You know, going back and rewatching this, you're going to notice like Maria being caught in the bathroom in the first 15 minutes is like actually at the 15 minute mark of the film where they're like, oh, Maria's having her 15 minute break. Oh, yeah, that's so pretty they, funny. Yeah. So they actually timed that really well. Let's talk sequels, prequels and reboots. So what we're actually going to talk about again, we already mentioned the life article, but the true story that this is based on. I would like to know more about the true story. Yeah. Um, if you wanted to go back, the article is called The Boys in the Bank. P.F. Kluge and Thomas Moore wrote it. I think that John said that the story of what happened, he said it's about 30% accurate to yeah. what actually happened. The The bigger points of the film happened, like the fact that they robbed the bank, the fact that it goes horribly wrong, the fact that the police completely mismanaged the situation and uh, eventually Sal was shot at the airport. All of the major plot points of the mm-hmm. film, like Leon being his wife and, and kind of some of that situation was real. And the reason why he was doing it was real, trying to get the reassignment surgery for Leon. I just was reading about this, what Sal's motivation was for the uh, kidnapping, or it's not for the kidnapping, for the bank heist. He wanted the money to essentially get his sisters out of foster care because his uh mom was a horrible alcoholic ouch yeah touching yeah so i mean even his character had some you know 
proper reasons for getting out of there. But Sal was actually quite known to the police in real life. Like that's part of the reason why they kind of knew him as a loose cannon because he'd already been charged a dozen or so times for different types of robberies and okay so he was like a career criminal sort of yes he was only i believe like 19 at the time wow really yeah he was young young yeah and so john kazale was actually originally not supposed to play his character because he was quite a bit older in this I think but, he was like 39 when this yeah. movie was shot or yeah. something but john kazale has kind of uh there's a bit of a youthfulness to him a boyishness yeah, yeah exactly so i think he was right for the for the character yeah absolutely anyway. what eventually happened like with leon who actually was is eden was her name after the, the reassignment surgery because she actually got paid like i think in the end of the movie it says that she got um, the surgery. Yeah, yeah, she got the surgery from, like, John's, I don't know, money from whatever. But, yeah. Uh, she actually got the money because they paid uh, John for the rights to the story, and John paid for th- her reassignment surgery. So it was a real love, after all. I guess, yeah. Uh-huh. I, mean, I don't think they... I think they divorced, technically, after the movie, like, when he was in prison. Because he did end up going to prison for uh, 20 years. Uh, or he served, I think he only served five of the 20 years, but he, he got, ended up going. And he still paid for the surgery. Yeah. Yeah. Huh? And so Liz died of AIDS in 1987, unfortunately. Ouch. Um, John died of cancer in 2006. So he lived to be quite, he lived quite a while. Yeah. Huh. Yep. Effects and filming. So I think that this is actually really interesting. And this is actually kind of even related maybe to uh, Killers of the Flower Moon is the perspective of the film and what the movie is really about. The writer, Frank Pearson, almost actually dropped out of writing the screenplay for this, but he actually, the reason, part of the reason why he didn't is because he spent his advance money and couldn't give it back. Uh, like, a, like every writer in the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, one of my own. So he actually, he was doing his research on this and couldn't figure out how to like tell the story. And basically, he interviewed a bunch of people who were connected to Sonny and realized that everybody had different contradictory stories of who Sonny was. Like, everybody thought of Sonny as a different person. Hmm. He basically realized that, you know, at his core, Sonny was the kind of guy who would be like, say, like, you know, I'll take care of you. Like, you know, I'll be the guy who makes you happy, like kind of like schmoozer kind of guy. But there's all these different contradictory ideas of who that Sonny was or who John was in real life and so that's where he took the story is like trying to peel the layers back of this character that's very smart yeah and you know what i feel like if some a writer was trying to make a story about one of us or anyone you'd probably find many 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 different versions of your subject depending on who you were talking to oh definitely that's what's interesting about human beings yeah and the way we present around different people for sure. And actually, one other thing I forgot I was going to say, too, is uh, Real Life John said that the the thing that they messed up the most in the telling of the story was that his real wife, what was her name? Angie? Angie? Yeah. So his real wife was actually, like, portrayed kind of dirty. Like, they did her kind of dirty. Um, yeah, and- she's kind of portrayed as, like, hysterical, and they make a big point about her weight. Yep. And all that stuff. Yeah, and and John kind of regrets how the, how they did her in, in the movie because she wasn't like that at all. Like he he didn't have any real ill ill will towards her or anything. So mm-hmm. and they actually got divorced like two years before he ended up marrying Leon as well in real life. Oh, so, so like in the movie, he, he it's they kind of imply that he just left his wife and kids. Yeah. For Leon. Yeah. And- huh. That was more, you know, movie Hollywood magic kind of thing than anything. We're Hollywooding it up, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, Al Pacino almost, like, so they, I think they shot this over, like, seven weeks or something, but he only slept a couple hours a night uh, and took cold showers so that basically, like, his exhaust, he had just had an exhausted look about him the entire time that uh, they were filming. <laughs> hey, must have, can you imagine only sleeping two hours for seven weeks? Well, he took a couple year break after this movie and just did some Broadway type stuff because of how exhausting and emotionally stressful this role was. And like, you know, again, coming off of Marco Corleone as well. So this one took quite a toll on him to perform. 
I guess, yeah, and you can see it. And like, hey, who am I to argue? It's his best performance. Yeah. Sidney Lumet didn't watch any of the real life story, like from the perspective of the news anchors or anything like that. Like, he decided just to go in and like read the story and then interpret it the way he do it like a story. It. Yeah, and yeah. that that was probably for the best. Yeah, well, and he even considered at one point because they show in the broadcast uh, a picture of Leon during their wedding, and he decided not to use the real life footage of their wedding because he just he found that that wedding footage was very over the top and he he didn't want to lose the audience like distracting maybe yeah and he didn't like you know especially that time period right like less accepting of a of an audience at that point yeah so i think keeping it tasteful and and you know like their relationship is very important to the film but again not going over the top with it to try to get some empathy out of an audience that might not have as much empathy now or as they would yeah, now. Yeah, so. it's even kind of shocking that this movie is as mature about that subject matter as it was. Yeah. Considering the time frame it was made in. Yeah. So I mentioned how much improvisation happened in this film. There's a few moments that I do want to mention about some of the highlights of, of that improvisation. When Sal says Wyoming to the question of where do you want, what country do you want to Oh, wow, to? that was hilarious. That yeah. was uh, completely improvised. Al Pacino had no idea he was going to say that. So Al Pacino's reaction of like sitting there, like contemplating what the hell he just said, like you could see it in his face. He kind of like almost laughs and then he's like, really? Oh, you just said wow. That? Like, oh my God, this Wyoming. is what he's Yeah, that, that's improvised. The Attica chant is improvised, which is like, you know, one of the big moments of the movie. And actually, like, the police sergeant, like, his actor, he had no idea that he was going to start doing that. So mm-hmm. his reaction of just, like, complete, like, bewilderment no yeah, yeah. Is, is exactly what he was just thinking in that moment. The entirety of the phone conversation between Al Pacino and Chris Sarandon is improvised. And really? Yes. That's impressive. Yeah. And they actually did two takes of it, even though the first take of it, they felt like... I don't think they took any of the second take of it, but they they really liked what happened with the first take and, and where their conversation went and everything. They just did the second take so that because Sidney Lumet saw just how much it took out of Al Pacino, like it just completely exhausted Al Pacino. Like, if, you know, you've been in those kind of situations in your life where just something happens or you have to have one of those. You have a difficult conversation with your partner that yeah. you've been dreading. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it just it takes a toll on you and and so having to do that twice like and then the film is mostly actually shot in chronological order Mm. so shooting that and later in the movie really you know adds to his whole his whole appearance right his whole vibe that whole sequence too it's like he has a difficult phone call with leon then a difficult phone call with angie and while this is going on, the doctors are taking a look at Mulvaney. And then after those two incredibly difficult conversations, he's just sitting there exhausted. And the doctor's just standing there like, um, so we should get this guy out of here. Right. And you see the look on the doctor's face. Like, I really don't want to interrupt you right now. Right. Like, well, but... and then it caps it all off after with his mom showing up. Oh, yeah. And that too. Yeah. There, which is just that extra lo- level of stress. Right. Mm hmm. You are a beautiful baby. (laughs) The other improvised scene, like I said before, is after Sonny shoots the back window because he thinks that people are coming in through the back door. That actually happened in real life, as a side note. That that was actually something that happened. But the whole interaction between the sergeant and Sonny is completely improvised between the two of them. And and like you were saying, feels like they really are just trying they're to figure really out. at odds maybe that's the secret if you're shooting a movie where it's important that characters aren't communicating properly or one side doesn't know what the other side is doing maybe that's when you do get them to improvise because yeah. it makes it, it their performances seemed very raw and real the mm-hmm. whole movie so yeah hey actors director right Sidney lumet he knew what he was fucking doing a boy Sidney lumet uh... is he still alive no, he passed away in 2007-ish. His okay. last film is with, uh, oh, it's a, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. I think I've heard of it. Uh, 2007, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke. 
and it's supposed to be a good movie. I haven't seen it myself yet, but it's on my list. I believe it's streaming on Prime, actually. It I like Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, two absolute haymakers. Uh, that was Sidney Lumet's last movie, and I believe he passed away. Oh, passed away in 2011. Okay, so he had three or four years to just relax after that. Yeah. And then he died. I mean, he was doing what he loved right up until the end, basically. Like, he made 50 movies in 50 years. Good for him. He was a prominent TV director before he started making movies. Oh, crap. So he just, he was a workhorse. Oh, yeah. I admire that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've always thought, like, when my books take off, when, how much money do I need to make before I stop creating? Mm -hmm. But I hope that I'm one of those creators where I just keep going. Yep. Right up until I die. I think that's pretty commendable to be able to love what you do. I think that... After over the course of decades, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, as, yeah, even that. But I think, you know, a lot of people... The reality is, is a job's a job for a lot of people. Sure. And it's pretty commendable that these types of people can find something that they're super passionate about they're also very good at also like i don't know like i did one semester of advanced filmmaking where i made a documentary and like i could tell you just from my limited experience it is exhausting and stressful yeah so being willing to go through that in your 70s and 80s and 90s in clint eastwood's case (laughs) like that is commendable yeah 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 no i've got Sidney lament's book back there making movies and i haven't read it yet but it's probably one of the next ones i'll read maybe after i'll read your book well, maybe before you should read my book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this was actually a comment that John made about the robbery. He said that Al Pacino using the white handkerchief to signal like, oh he was yeah, that handkerchief. Parlay, basically, he he said that he would have never done that because it would have felt like surrender using the white flag. I guess so. <laughs> yeah, it was just like one of his critiques with the film. So. People have very odd critiques. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's him critiquing his life, right? So I guess, you know what? Actually, if like somebody made a movie about me and I saw it, I'd be like, um, actually. Like... Yeah. He said that he thought that Al Pacino and Chris Sarandon did outstanding performances of, of him and Leon. Huh. So, well, good for him. That, good. That good highlights. for them. Good for them. Yeah. We quickly talked about this, but we didn't really talk about this in all that much detail. The scene where he's dictating his will. Yes. That was actually the entire reason why Sidney Lumet wanted to do this film was for that scene. Really? They actually almost cut that scene because uh, Frank Pearson felt that that scene didn't fit the pacing of the rest of the movie. And so they ended up actually adding in a few extra parts into the movie, some like slower moments into the film, just to kind of make it. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Which I think the slow moments actually work really effectively in the film. Like, I was thinking on this watch, right before they start shooting up the back of the the back door, there's it's kind of like a quiet moment. Like everybody's kind of you know like a little bit more relaxed. Like all of the hostages have kind of like eased into this situation, and everything. And then that big moment happens. And there's kind of a few other moments like that in the film that I actually thought were really good. It, it was it was almost the opposite of some of the other movies that we've watched where it's like tension, tension, tension building and then release where it's like tension, tension. Things are kind of quieting down. Boom. Something Boom. Yeah. So I, I thought that those additions of those slower moments was actually quite effective in the film. Yeah. And even some of the slower moments aren't like that conversation between uh sal and sylvia is actually one of the most disquieting moments in the whole movie right like and that's a slower scene yeah like so it it works yeah the last effect in filming note that i have in here is on the lighting the cinematography of the film they only used the real life lighting that was available to them this is a film not shot with all of the extra stuff because they wanted it to feel like it, reality. It does, it does look naturalistic. Yeah. I actually do that opening montage with all the shots of like just the city and like yep. the Doberman rooting around the trash. I do remember thinking like, oh, is this like a documentary? Like, what is this? Right. It, it's a pretty great opener. And uh, I'm going to get into score now. But this, this song it, that they use in the opening credits is Amarina by Elton John. Huh. Pretty damn good song. I was listening to it today. I'll have to listen to it after. Yeah, it's great. I that's actually the really the only song like they have in the film. There's not much else to say about the score because it's you know a film that's a 
biographical film. This is like, another movie where I did not even notice a score. Because there is none, Michael. Oh. That's what I'm getting at. Oh. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. Oh! <laughs> There's no score. It was just Amarina in the beginning. Oh. That's it. There's nothing. It's completely quiet in the background. Huh. So Other than, you know, the sounds of everything going on. Huh. Yeah. That is a very clever choice. Yeah. And I didn't notice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would have thought you would have noticed that, but yes. hey, this movie's quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Legacy. So I said before it had six Oscar nominations. Those six Oscars were Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing. So I will say nominated for six Oscars. Only one won. The other five all went to One Flew Over Cuckoo's Nest. You know what? That's a movie I haven't actually seen. Neither have I. So we need to do it on the podcast. Yeah, I guess so. What do you think, out of all of those major award categories, which one do you think that this movie won for? I wasn't listening. List them off again. (laughs) Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Film Editing. Okay, Best Original Screenplay for sure. Yes. That's what I want. Well... (laughs) Best actor for Al Pacino. Probably best director. See, I haven't really seen one. You really didn't listen to anything I just said. What? (laughs) I said that it didn't win any award except for one of them. Well, you know, you said which one do you think it should, which ones do you think it should have won? Oh, no, I said which one do you think it did win? Okay, so I was half listening, Blake. (laughs) And I got it right, too, so. (laughs) Yes, so, okay, well, I mean, not having seen one through the cuckoo's nest is kind of a weird discussion of like what should have won but like i did think that was weird but i mean (laughs) (laughs) yeah al pacino's performance is fantastic but not only is his performance fantastic like chris sarandon's performance everybody's is is, yeah the sergeant's performance is great john cazal cazale's performance is no very noteworthy i honestly don't have a critique about this movie it's just a good movie yeah and you know what like it's like we said in the previous episode i have no complaints there's a lot of movies where I'm just like, oh, you know, this was kind of slow or this was unclear or I didn't care much for this. This whole movie was a banger. Yeah. Start to finish. It's great. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I can say is that because the ending is so blunt and like dark is that it does dampen a little bit the rewatchability of it. But I still enjoyed it this time again. I don't even know if I would call that a con I just think that's the way the story had to end. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a story about bank robbers. What did you think was going to happen? Well, and it's rooted in reality, and that's what happened in real life. Also that. Also, are we really that sad that Sal's dead? (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Well, I'm about to say something really sad in the fact that John Cazale died only a couple years after this, and five movies in, and the reason why he died was of cancer, because he was a chain smoker. Uh, okay, touche, Blake. <laughs> so it it also makes the scene where he has the conversation about, about cigarettes. Yeah, that is a little prophetic. Yeah, a little bit, uh, a little bit more Uncomf- as well. uncomfy. Yeah, exactly. Other legacy bits to this. So they actually use this film as, uh, or the the real life incident as police training about what not to do in hostage situations. That is so funny. <laughs> and how to deal with crowds and not how not how to deal with crowds because as we see in the film like the police just have absolutely no control over the situation mm-hmm. al pacino collapsed during this and had to be hospitalized and that again is why he decided to stop doing films after this is because of the physical and emotional toll that this movie took on he collapsed like he fainted yeah wow yeah. i've never fainted before um, have you fainted uh yes okay We'll talk after the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think so. But Al Pacino, this is the fourth year in a row that he was nominated for Best Actor. Wow. Um, Starting with The Godfather and then Serpico, which is another Sitting in the Met Al Pacino film, and then The Godfather Part 2, and then this one. So four-year run of being nominated. Pretty impressive. Probably his most impressive streak. Yeah, it is his most impressive streak, I would say. Yeah. This is one of Robert Ebert's great movies. Uh, Gene Siskel rated this 4 out of 4 as well, notably. Yeah. So they, this is one of the few movies that those two agreed on. They, I feel like they agreed on like the truly great movies. Yeah, like yeah. most of them. Um, Except for Silence of the Lambs, yeah. apparently. 
<laughs> Gonna ring that one up again. St- stick it to uh, Gene Siskel one last time. Huh. Have you ever seen the documentary Life Itself about Roger Ebert? No, I haven't. It's a very good documentary. I'd recommend it to everyone. And it gets into his relationship with Gene Siskel. Cool. It's very touching. I like it a lot. I have listened to a podcast called Gene and Siskel, which goes into their whole life and and their experiences together. And I really found it touching as well. So I'm sure I'd really enjoy that documentary. Okay. Um, Can you name John Cazale's five nominated movies? The Godfather, The Deer Hunter, The Godfather Part 2. This movie, um, I got three. You got four. I got four. What's number five? Conversation. Okay, never heard of it. Neither have I. Cool. <laughs> what a <laughs> conversation. <laughs> it was, yeah, we will do it at some point. It looks like a good film. I have it saved on our list of movies, dude. It's, oh, it's a Francis Ford Coppola film. That's why I knew it. Then. Oh, okay. Um, oh, it's Gene Hackman. That's who it is. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Personal reviews and the partner factor. You want to go first? I really like this movie. I would be surprised if it's not in my top five of 2023. Cool. Yep. Didn't watch this with Emily, but I'll probably show it to her at some point. Yeah, this is a solid movie. Jess and I have already watched this one before. We did it last year. Like I said, this was Jess's favorite of the three that we watched being this, The Hill, and Network. Personally, Network is like... You a, love Network. I love the movie. We're going to have to do it at some point. We in full. But I wanted to do this one because I knew that you weren't a big fan of Network. I think I just watched it at a bad time. Yeah, uh, probably. And so I wanted to do this one to kind of show you a different range of Sidney Lumet's power as a director. Yeah, and Mission Accomplished. Yeah, that's actually something that I didn't note back in the effects and filming part is, did you notice like some of the cinematography of the film? Like, like some of the camera shots or anything like that. Nothing specific, no. So inside the bank, they actually like all of that stuff inside of the bank was movable, like the walls and everything. So yeah, they yeah. Move like walls around so that they could film like exactly the shot that they wanted. Because there's some shots inside the bank that I'm like, how are they getting into that position? See, you know what? When it comes to score and cinematography, I'm kind of blind to both of them. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. Those are like two of my highlights of, of movies often. Okay, well, that's why we're a good match, because yeah. we notice different things. <laughs> yeah. So, I was kind of thinking about this a little bit, because it's such a good movie, but it's not... I would never put it in my top 10 list, or even my top 20 list. For me, if I had to put a number on it, I would give it like a perfect 8 out of 10. Like, it's a good good movie that i have no complaints about but it would never be like you know one of my favorites of all time you know what i might give this like a nine out of ten this might i don't know if it'd be my top 20 but it'd be in my top 30 cool for sure yeah yeah it's a great movie yeah yeah i i remember doing this on the podcast last year and then talking to people about it leading up to the podcast and nobody had heard of this movie and I was like, like, this is a great movie. Well, I think I told you before, like, I thought this movie was about Al Pacino coaching football or something. <laughs> <laughs> Dog Day Afternoon, right. Uh... <laughs> but yeah, no, I think that, like, the story is really interesting. It's a really great character study. And it's such an easy watch. Like I said, it's it's so funny and ridiculous. And it just holds up. Like, I think, like, especially as young writers, if you want to teach young writers about like how to build tension. Mm-hmm. I feel like you could show them this movie. Cool. Just yeah. be like, this is how to like really make your main character sweat. Right. With stuff like this. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, just throw all the adversity at them. Don't pull your punches, kids. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I think that's it. I think that's all that I want to talk about with Dog Day Afternoon. So on that note, I think next we're doing a war movie, Jason Knight, and... Then you and I are doing fantasy. Fantasy. So you got to start thinking about what fantasy movie you want to watch. Well, yeah, that's going to be a tough one because it's pre-2000 and you guys have already done Conan. Yeah, we've done probably the, one of the better fantasies of pre 2000 I would love to see like a cheesy 80s fantasy. <laughs> okay, let's that do it. That doesn't hold up super well. If anyone has any recommendations. Yeah. For sure. Like Beastmaster or something. Yeah, I was thinking like Jason the Argonauts could be kind of interesting. There's Clash of the Titans. Yeah, maybe. Something like that. Who there's, knows? There's some there's some weird and interesting ones. You know, there. listen to we our... We don't even have to go like fantasy, like sword and sandal fantasy either, right? You know, to all our younger listeners, um, pre-Lord of the Rings, the fantasy genre in film was a wild place. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. Yeah. It was interesting to say the least like 
never the highest budget, never the blockbuster movie of the summer kind of film. It was always like the scrappy little movie that could. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Although I will say my favorite fantasy pre two thousands is probably The Dark Crystal. You know what? I don't think I've seen it. What? With David Bowie? No, no I'm Labyrinth. Yeah. yeah. Which I haven't seen Labyrinth, so that's I haven't seen Labyrinth either. No, the Dark Crystal is like a Jim Henson stop motion kind of film. Oh, okay. I think I've heard of it, but no, I've never seen it either. Love it. Love okay. it. Okay. Well, we've got options. Oh yeah, we've got plenty of options. But throw our recommendations. Love to hear them. Well, at this you know point who... in time, once the this episode's out, Jason and I have already watched the war movie, so I gotta start like Prepping us two weeks, uh, um, yeah, two movies ahead, so that people can actually give us recommendations. You know who I would really like to hear recommendations from? Your dad. Your dad. <laughs> if he's alive. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, on that dark note of deaths and fathers, um, I've really run this joke into the ground. You have. We're ending it now. Goodbye. Goodbye.